This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, This Week in Blackness, The David Pakman Show, The Media Matters Minute, Radio Dispatch, Activism from Best of the Left, and Dan Savage. It is equal pay day, and the president is expected to sign two executive orders, which are going to address at least some small element of the pay disparity between men and women. One is going to bar federal contractors from retaliating against employees who talk about what they pay with each other. The other is going to require businesses to provide data on pay broken down by race and gender to the Labor Department. Essentially, these are going to provide transparency both within uh, businesses and within the economy as to what the status is of women uh, pay scale versus men. You'll recall that the first bill that President Obama signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Act, and this emanated from a case pursued by Lilly Ledbetter, who uh, was working at Goodyear, and she didn't find out that she was getting paid substantially less for the same job as a male counterpart for 19 years, until 19 years after she had started at Goodyear. She found this out via an anonymous note. She sued Goodyear for back wages, and the Supreme Court determined that the statute of limitations started from the moment that she was paid an unequal amount, not from the moment that she learned about the disparity. The statute of lim limitations had expired by the time she found out she was not eligible, did not have standing in this case, the Lilly Ledbetter Act um, simply gave... Um, Standing, wherein you could you, you the statute of limitations started to run after you found out about the infraction. Um, depending on whose stats you look at, if you look at the uh, General Accounting Office or Government Accountability Office, there was a 23 percent disparity between men and women's pay. A small percentage of that uh, gap can be is a function of women leaving the workforce to have children uh, and then uh, re-entering later. But about 20% of that gap is unaccounted for, which would lead us to believe that that's a function of discrimination. But even if you look at the 5 to 10% gap, 3% gap, whatever that gap is, that is involved depending on whose numbers you look at that is a function of women leaving the workforce more often than men uh, because of children that points to one of the solutions that will provide pay uh, parity will be broadening things like daycare universal daycare for parents, broadening laws that provide for both paternity leaves as well as maternity leaves, broadening um, uh, regulations that provide for paid maternity and paternity leave.
these are all things that can enhance um, more gender equality. Uh, like I say, there's some dispute about those numbers, but there's no dispute that there is um, disparity. Some say that it's 23%, some say 27%, some say 12%. Nevertheless, there's no study that shows there is no pay disparity between women and men in this country. Uh, and that's sort of pathetic at this day and age. Today is Fair Pay Day, and the concept behind this was that if you look at what men made in the year 2013, it would take women to make that same amount to match that number until today to be equal to men. And so Obama, in a, in a uh, effort to one shot and light on this in order to specifically have a, a bigger discussion around this to try to uh, even further the, uh, the, the fixing of this particular inequity, uh, actually brought in Lily Ledbetter, uh, who was actually the namesake of the act that was the one, I think the first act the president signed, I think 10 days into his office, uh, to discuss this particular uh, program and, and this idea and hopefully shine more light on it. So Imani, how do you feel about not making that much money? I mean, I make a I make a great amount of money because I work at an organization that's primarily women. <laughs> so we have like about two guys in our organization at RH Reality Check. So we all make I mean, we all do different jobs. So I don't think there's really any comparison to what I do to anybody else. But um I I I think that the salient point which which is that Republicans seem to be unwilling to come up with any plan that will that will um, that will make the, the the amounts that men and women make for the same amount of work equal. They're unwilling to they're unwilling to to raise the minimum wage. They're unwilling to do a whole lot of things that would make women's lives women's economic lives in this country a little bit better. So when they quibble with things like oh well the the wage gap is a myth, or when they start talking about well it's not really seventy seven cents, it's more like ninety five cents once you account for this that and the other thing. What the, what that shows me is that they're more interesting with quibbling with the numbers than they are with coming up with a solution. And a lot of the the inequity in the wage gap has to do with inherent ingrained sexism in society. It has to do with notions about what it is that women's role in society is. So when people say stuff like, well, women you know, don't make the same amount, but that's because they take time out to have children. And if men took time out to have children, then they might make you know the same amount that women do. Well... Why is it that we are not coming up with solutions like subsidized childcare or paid family leave for both men and women in order to make it a little bit more equitable? Instead of quibbling with numbers, let's come up with solutions. Well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> What's the other way? 
No, but it, you know, we should come up with solutions. But a conversation actually broke out around this this morning because Obama went up and he said he made this particular argument. And uh, one of the things, uh, one of the the numbers that floats around the most is the seventy-seven cents, seventy-seven seven cents to a dollar. Uh, and folks, uh, including myself, uh, pointed out that that seems to be slightly problematic when you say that because we say seventy-seven cents per dollar, but because even in Obama's speech this morning he said seventy-seven cents to a dollar, but it's worse for Black and Hispanic women. Uh, to me, this is immediately uh, a bit of an issue because it kind of separates the uh, folks in that way. And then the conversation around numbers and stats, like, well, what does it actually mean? What does it, does it mean? So I actually reached out to uh, an organization that has actually put out a report around this and around the issues of, of race when it comes to uh, fair payment. Uh, and I believe we have Fatima Goss. Of course, the name is uh, Graves. Uh, Graves, Goss Graves. Fatima Goss Graves on the phone. Ma'am, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hi, how are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for uh, for jumping on the show. We appreciate this a great deal. Sure, happy to be here. Excellent. So now, could you give us a breakdown? Because in, in your study, uh, the, uh, your report that you put out, you pointed out that it was 77%, uh, 77 cents to a dollar uh, for uh, men to women, but then it broke, it breaks down into uh, uh, race, and it gets very, very interesting. And by interesting, I mean terribly sad when you actually break it, go a little bit deeper into it. Could you explain a little bit about that? Sure. The 77 cent stat is looking at all full-time working men and comparing them to all full-time working women. But when, when you look at the stats by race and gender together, you see that for African American women, uh, and for Hispanic women, that the statistics are far worse when they are compared to white males. So for African-American women, they make only 64 cents to every dollar a white male makes. And Hispanic women, they're making only 54 cents to every dollar that a white man is making. And that is, again, interesting. Um, because, and so... On one hand, uh, Amani, uh, the conversation, like I said this morning, uh, broke out, and uh, and folks, I, I was one of them who specifically said that the number that's being quoted here feel, is more around white women, and people said, no, 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 this uh, the number is everyone, and uh, as uh, Fatima has pointed out, it is everyone, but in according to the uh, the uh, the National Women's Law Center study, white women were at, I believe, seventy eight cents per dollar. That's right. White women make 78 cents when compared to white men. So what you have is that black women and Hispanic women are making less than white men. They're making less than white women. Uh, and, and, and even when you look at some of the states, the states that are heralded as sort of the top places to be for having the smallest wage gap, like Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. is really the, one of the worst places to be for African-American and Hispanic women. Well, well, no, don't say that about Chocolate City. You can't say that. That's not Chocolate <laughs> City, is it? New Orleans is Chocolate City. No, they, they, they refer to D.C. as Chocolate really? City. Really? Yeah. I thought it was just New Orleans. <laughs> um, but uh, because, like, I believe when it comes down to uh, being a black woman, because in, um, in Washington, D.C., uh, they say that, um, that, that it's, it's around 90% the wage gap uh, as opposed to the 77%. But then when it becomes for black women, what's the, do you know have the number for that? 
Sure. For African-American women, they're making in Washington, D.C., around 56 cents when compared to white men, and Hispanic women are making around 48 cents when compared to white men. And, and again, when you're looking at women overall in Washington, D.C., they're making around 90% of men overall. So, I mean, you can see how when you're looking at race and gender together, particularly in some states, um, that the gap is even further exacerbated. And now I noticed that you guys specifically, you guys put out this, uh, this, uh, these numbers and you specifically talked about women of color because I've seen a lot of discussions around this not actually be around women of color. It's, it's just women in general and they leave out the racial component, uh, to the situation overall. I, I've been arguing and I believe Imani would, would agree with me here that to, to hide that aspect of it, to not, well not hide, but to not acknowledge the aspect of how race plays into all of this is to be a little bit disingenuous about the effects of it that it's having across the board when dealing with women. Well, I, you know, it's one of the reasons we think it's important to have very specific information. You need to have a lens of how women overall are doing. There's no question about that. But you also need to look at it by race and gender. And the actions that the president took today, I think what isn't getting a lot of pickup is that they are actions that are going to help with both race and sex-based pay discrimination. You know, the two main actions that he took were having the ability to talk about wages and bringing more transparency and then ordering the Department of Labor to collect data by race and by gender. This information will help to shine a light on employers' practices around pay. Right. Uh, and Amani, um, like, did you, did you want to ask something specifically on this? Um, no, I just... I- I just think that it's important. I, I agree with you that when we talk about the 77 cent number, I think I sort of get a little bit um, frustrated with the ways in which women of color are sort of seen as as separate and apart from women writ large. And um, and that comes up a lot with 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 voting, for example, you know, when they say white, you know, women voters voted this way. Well, what they really mean is, you know, women of color tend to vote this way. So I guess my my issue with the 78 percent number versus the 77 versus when you jump down to 64 and 54 is that the the difference is so vast that it tends to obscure the the real danger that women of color are in when it comes to fair pay. And the re- but like and I I do I won't point this out that and and Fatima tell me if I'm I'm wrong but the seventy uh, the uh, seventy seven percent number that is be- uh, it ends up averaging around that because of the population because I believe the numbers that you guys uh, uh, used for this these were people who working uh, uh, full time uh, year round workers uh, and at the same time uh, just white women are in fact uh, in higher numbers than uh, than black women and Hispanic women and Asian women and the overall uh, overall i guess uh average and that's why 78% with uh with white women and then the whole number being 77%. Am I crazy on that? Right. So two things when the 77 cent statistic is looking at all full-time workers year-round men versus all all women. Right. What we do when we compare by race and gender we compare to to white men typically. So when you compare white women to white men, they're making 78 cents on the dollar. When you're comparing um, Asian women to white men and to white men overall, it's about 82 cents 
all the data on the dollar. And what's really unfortunate about some of the data around Asian women is that you can't disaggregate that further in many states. So you aren't able to see the real discrepancy between different groups of Asian women. Um, so I think that number hides a lot too. I mean, I, I, I am with you. I think the 77 cent statistic in many ways hides, um, you know, the huge disparities that are, are that we're facing right now. Um, it, but on the other hand, you have to have you have to have some measures. What's interesting is we are critiqued for not um, for not always looking at exactly apples to apples. You know, always comparing you know people living in a particular city doing a particular job. And one of the reasons that we don't do that is because we think that that these overall statistics are real measures of broader workplace inequality for women and and that as soon as you get away from using the overall statistics, you forget that you need a number of solutions. So you need to have some stronger pay discrimination laws. You need things like higher minimum wage. You need pathways to higher paid non-traditional jobs. You need more uh, policies in the workplace like paid sick days and paid leaves that are going to make it possible for for uh, men and women to both care for families and do their job. Um, so I think it's important to, to have all of those numbers out, but to keep reminding people of the disparities, both the inter, the racial disparities within gender and how they play out together. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that allows you to create your own professional website or online portfolio in just minutes, and they are best known for their ease of use and focus on design, and the results of the Webby Awards that just happened recently only solidifies that even further. They walked away with awards in all of the categories they were nominated in, including Best Web Services and Best Design and Aesthetic. So they've built this platform, right? They designed it to be easy to use, incredibly flexible. You can use it for everything from you know putting your photo albums up to selling digital and physical wares online. They have incredible integration with social media and too many third-party services to mention. They back it all up with 24-hour support, which I especially appreciate as someone who uh, doesn't feel confident in my own abilities to run a website. And then pricing starts at a stupidly low $8 a month. And if those awards are any indication, apparently they not only do all of this stuff, but they do it well. So if it's time that you checked it out for yourself, getting started with Squarespace is easy and free for 14 days. Then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT, that's L-E-F-T, which gets you another 10% off that already incredibly low price. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. New Hampshire State Representative Will Infantine, who's a Republican, explained that the pay gap between men and women stems from the fact that men just work harder, take riskier jobs, and are, quote, more motivated by money. This was during a House speech in New Hampshire against the state's paycheck uh, equity bill. Here's a quote. Men, by and large, make more because some of the things they do, their jobs are, by and large, more riskier. Putting aside the grammatical error there, what he's saying is absolutely ridiculous. He goes on to say that men don't mind working nights and weekends. They don't mind working overtime or outdoors in the elements. 
In response to an outburst from colleagues who objected, he just said, hey, it's not me, saying he's just stating data. Men work five or six hours longer a week than women do. When it comes to women and men who own businesses, women make half of what men do because of flexibility in work. What does the opposition to this point of view think? Well, the executive director of Granite State Progress, Zandra Rice Hawkins, says that this is outdated thinking. Comments like these only serve to remind us of the outdated thinking that has allowed paycheck inequity to exist in the workplace. The New Hampshire House voted to give preliminary approval to this bill, which would prevent wage discrimination on the basis of sex. This is really on the level of when Mitt Romney said 47% of the people in this country are takers and not makers. Denigrating and lumping, remember, the majority of the country, there are more women than men in this country, into the lazy bin and also justifying paying them less money as a result of it is not probably going to be part of that really good and needed women outreach that the Republican Party needs to do. No, this is great because it's so damaging. Um, I, I, I hope they keep it up. And how does it make sense that men take riskier jobs? The whole point is that if two, if a man and a woman are working the same job, the man will make more. So what does it mean that they take risk? That makes no sense. When we compare, when we talk about wage inequality, we're talking about given the same position. If men are working a risky job, what are we even comparing that to? Uh, are, are, should men get paid more? in risky jobs than women in the same risky jobs? I mean, you're making a really good point, which is the entire metric for how we measure this doesn't assume that we're comparing different jobs. We're not comparing whatever he thinks women do, babysitting, to coal mining, right? Nobody is suggesting that, that those two jobs should earn the same wage. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, that Republican outreach to women going really, really well, apparently. Even now, the conversation really does have to be, we have to think about how it works that women of color kind of get reg regulated to like the bottom of the conversation. Yeah, and I mean, and, and and ultimately, we really need to stop quibbling about math and numbers and start figuring out solutions. And the solutions that are required require us to talk about the ways in which that sexism is ingrained in society and the ways in which women's role in society is sort of predetermined before we're even born so that it seems reasonable for people to make these arguments that, oh, well, you know, women have babies and that's what they should just be doing. And so it's just, it's, I'm about solutions. I'm about talking about what the actual problem is and what we're doing, what the Republicans are doing as, as what they always do is they just try to beat back any sort of progress with talking points that are easily debunked. I mean, you see, you see this in the Wall Street Journal. You know, they've got conservative economists who are talking about, about, you know, they're trying to debunk the numbers and calling President Obama a liar instead of trying to figure out a way that they can work with the GOP to try to make our lives better. 
But it doesn't seem like they want to make our lives better. They just want to force us to have children. They want to force us to, uh, to just, to, 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 to accept our lot in life, which is apparently to be paid less, to be forced to bear children that we don't necessarily want to be bearing, to not be in, um, in control of our sexual health and our reproductive rights. And so that's, that's sort of the problem. Um, one of the interesting things is that, you know, President Obama made the claim in the State of the Union address that, um, women make 77 cents for every dollar that a man earns. And PolitiFact, which, you know, has, has, has been tricky over the years in terms of actually verifying facts as true, mostly true or whatever, actually said that that statement was true. Um, the issue becomes is, the issue becomes with that statement is whether or not you're saying that 77 cents on the dollar is for, for the same amount of work that a man does. And so that's not necessarily true, but because PolitiFact says that the less accurate version, which President Obama has actually offered in the past, states that women make 77 cents for every dollar a man earns for the same work or in the same job. And the data doesn't actually show that. But ultimately, there is a 77 cent pay differential between what men earn and what women earn. And so the question becomes, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to continue to quibble with math or are we going to actually enact policies that will make things better? This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Hillary Tone. On Fox & Friends Sunday, co-host Clayton Morris hosted a discussion about what Fox sees as a growing concern in America. But are female breadwinners a problem? I get the cultural argument, guys. I mean, I can see how the cult we can all weave our way through cultural issues, but isn't there some sort of biological innate need for men to be the, the, the caveman, go out and bring home the dinner and actually go out and do Is it emasculating if we don't do it? Morris went on to ask Miss New York USA 2013 Joanne Nosichinsky. Okay, but, but do you lose respect though i mean forget the male pride side of it would you lose respect for the guy who's at home and he's you know he's he's seemingly it's hard right because they're home doing the laundry they're taking care of the kids they're doing those other things but then when you come home after a long day it's as if that stuff sometimes doesn't matter it doesn't add up to the day that you've had in addition to portraying female breadwinners as part of a breakdown in society fox has refused to acknowledge the gender wage gap and often avoided or dismissed the validity of women's health and economic issues We welcome back to the show Melissa Gira Grant, author of Playing the Horror, The Work of Sex Work. Melissa, thank you so much for coming back on Radio Dispatch. I'm so excited to be back, you guys. This is, you, you're fast becoming one of our absolute favorite guests and one of our most uh, frequent guests also. Me and the cats. Yes. We're tied at this point. <laughs> we are here with uh, physical copies of your book in front of us. We, should we just start off with a kind of, you know, give us the, not the elevator pitch, but uh, whatever the, the name of the thing is where you tell us kind of generally what your book is about. Sure. I'll do the, the, the super quick and dirty one. So the gist of this book is people um, talk a lot about sex work 
from a place of, you know, like, I don't know, it's like an outsider conversation is the way I look at it, right? Most people who talk about sex work um, haven't done sex work, but have really strong opinions about what it is. It's a super politicized issue, particularly for people, I think, who would think of themselves as progressive. Like, you know, it's something that they think about, but they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. So this book is to interrupt that and to say, here's actually from people who do sex work, from people who have devoted their lives to researching and understanding sex work, um, explaining what sex work is, that it's a form of labor. That's the obvious, I mean, it's in the subtitle of the book, that this is about work, fundamentally. Um, and then it kind of throws the question back at them. It's, it's like, why are you guys so obsessed with this? You know, like you, whether it's police, whether it's policymakers, whether it's the media, you know, where is your obsession coming from? Why do you continue to, to create myths about sex work? And, and why is your expertise valued over the expertise of people who have intimate knowledge? Well, and and it's it seems to me that one of the potential answers for like where does their obsession come from comes up early in the book when you say that some women's rights have to be trampled to protect other women and that's that seems to be to a sort of like recurring theme within the book of of which women get protected and which women uh have their necks stood on to to sort of like keep some women safe and pure and con- in that construction so can you just sort of like talk about that Sure. I mean, it's like almost like a patriarchal idea that like gets embedded within us so deeply that, you know, even people who identify as feminists and consider themselves to be women's rights activists, like still operate from that idea of like, well, it's slut shaming, right? Or it's victim blaming. Like there are some women who based on who they are or how we perceive them sort of deserve what's coming to them. And, you know, we saw this, I almost hesitate to go here, but it was such a perfect example of it. Uh, the piece that Amanda Marcotte wrote for Slate talking about a woman who was sexually assaulted. Uh, the prosecutors were interested in bringing a case against the person who assaulted her or people who assaulted her. And for whatever reason, she was fearful of coming forward and appearing um, openly and, and bringing this case. And so they actually had her arrested and, and held in order to compel her to participate in this prosecution. Yeah, using the material witness powers, right? Yeah, and, and I think the woman may have even been homeless. And, you know, there were just a lot of things going on. And, you know, we, I think, even a very basic kind of feminist understanding of sexual assault and the uh, criminal justice system is it's not often kind to survivors. And here we have a case where this is happening. And and Amanda Marcotte's perspective was good, right? They made the right call. And when I saw that, like, this is the same logic as anti-prostitution feminists have, that, like, there are some women who we just, you know, for the greater good, they have to accept that the police are going to be playing a huge and disruptive and often abusive part in their lives. Um, But that's so we can go after the bad guys. And, you know, it's like, we see this principle a lot, and I don't know if we want to go down this path necessarily, but I feel like in your work, John, like when you're writing about kind of war on terror stuff, it's like, well, we just have to cast this broad net mm-hmm. to get the bad guys, and, and who cares if in the process we're sweeping up a whole bunch of people and, and you know, treating them all the same, which, you know, sounds good on paper, but in people's lives results in over-policing, violation of their civil liberties, and in the case of sex work, treating people who don't even experience sex work as victimization, like treating them as victims. So it's it's really problematic. <laughs> but I don't think it's isolated to sex work. I think it's something that's like a tension within, um, you know, within feminism and, and within a lot of kind of, you know, even people who would think what they're doing is coming from a social justice place of like, well, you know, the greater good requires us to blah, 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 even if that's really hurting people. 
alongside this idea that, you know, some women's rights need to be trampled on to protect other women, it seems like that relies on a kind of fundamental uh, belief that, like, the police are doing good, you know, a, a fundamental trust in the police. It's not perfect, but ultimately we need the police to arrest this uh, rape survivor, you know, or we need the police to protect women, to save women. And so it seems like a big part of this is a kind of feminism that is maybe lacking in kind of like fundamental structural criticism of the police. I think that's right. I think there's two things going on there. One is that you know, just from a level of basic experience, this is a, a kind of feminism or approach to feminism that's dominated by people who themselves and, and perhaps in their own lives and their communities haven't had a lot of direct experience with the police and, you know, with the criminal justice system, which I love that people are also kind of playing with that language and saying, mm, maybe we should call it the criminal legal system because where's the justice uh -huh. here? Maybe we should call it the criminal punishment system because that seems to be what's actually going on here, right? But I'll just shorthand it, like the criminal fill in the blank, what you want to call it, system. Um, so if you don't have a lot of experience of that, if you've never um, yourself felt what it's like to be profiled and targeted by police, then you might think that this is an acceptable trade-off. Like, I really do think that's where some of it comes from. But the other side is, you know, like, feminists do have an understanding around abortion that even if this is something you're morally opposed to, if you use the law to prohibit it, you're going to be creating a dangerous situation for people who need it. And I wish that that analysis could also be extended to sex work. You know, for people who even who have moral opposition to it, they could still recognize, you know what, criminal punishment is not the way to go here to keep people safe. Um, and even more so with sex work, we already have this whole system where police are using anti-prostitution laws to target people based on race, based on gender. And, you know, that's really, I think, the way that these laws are put into practice. Like, because so many people doing sex work are now doing it indoors or in quasi-legal kinds of workplaces, like strip clubs or doing porn production or even their own DIY porn in their own apartments, like, those people aren't likely to get targeted by this law enforcement. So I feel like if, you know, we could kind of step back and say, like, well, let's look at the evidence. Like, who actually goes to jail and who actually is suffering the consequences of the anti-prostitution policing, we would see very quickly how this is really racially motivated. Especially around the Super Bowl, there was these headlines of, uh, you know, sex trafficking busts and everyone sort of like uh, acts like there are these increases in, in trafficking around major sporting events when the data doesn't actually really support that. So how does how does this sort of narrative of saving women from trafficking fit into that kind of law enforcement alongside the kind of more day-to-day -day banal law enforcement of targeting people who work on the street or whatever. It's what happened with this year's Super Bowl was so interesting because I feel like for the first time I saw anti-trafficking organizations saying things like, well, we, we don't know if trafficking necessarily increases around the Super Bowl. I mean, we do know that labor trafficking certainly increases around these major sporting events, right? Like we're looking at, you know, what's going on in Qatar with the World Cup and right. people getting brought in to like physically fabricate these amazing venues that are used for this one thing and then completely, uh, you know, the workforce is just dispersed. Like, Definitely there's exploitation happening there, but that's not what they're talking about, right? They're talking about the idea that putting all these men in one place is going to like necessitate demand for, for sex. 
And and so now they're saying, the anti-trafficking groups, I've heard some of them saying, mm, well, we don't know if the numbers go up, but this happens every day. And so they'll still seek to use the publicity of the event to draw attention to their own work. And, and they'll say, like, well, whatever, we're just raising awareness. You know, like, the fact that it doesn't really pan out in reality doesn't matter. But, you know, still what happens is even if the police are, you know, standing right there with them at their press conferences about how they're fighting trafficking and saying things like, we're going to treat the women we arrest, and it's most often women, uh, the women that we arrest for selling sex as victims and not as criminals, like, how are you magically a victim and not a criminal um, if handcuffs are still going on you, you're still being put in the back of a car, and you're still being detained, you're still being charged? You know, like, I it's such a fantasy, I think, for people to think, oh, but the police are being benevolent here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I don't understand how you can... you can hold that reality alongside all of the very well-documented police abuse of sex workers and say, like, really? Are these the people? Like, it's like a fox in the hen house, to use, like, a completely sexist and maybe animalist <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> I don't know. Those, like, species. But, like, you know, like, we have to be real. Like, even if you're opposed to prostitution, even if you think this is morally terrible, um, you know, look at the facts. Like, we are putting people who put sex workers in danger back on the streets as their rescuers. And it it creates very dangerous situations for sex workers. And it's the, the police who are often the purveyors of violence against sex workers. Sure, that was what was really surprising, looking at one of the biggest data sets that I have ever seen, which came from the DMSC, which is an organization of sex workers in India. It's a membership-based organization. They have something like 60,000 members, and so they were able to do these massive surveys. And what they found is that violence from law enforcement far exceeded any violence from people who were customers or who were posing as customers. I think this gets confused a lot, too, when people talk about um, customers of sex workers as violent. In many cases, because sex work is criminal, people who are already looking to target women, um, you know, whether those are serial killers or just crimes of opportunity, like they're going to target sex workers because they're people that already are in an antagonistic relationship with the police are already isolated. So it's not even necessarily fair to say that those people are customers. They're people posing as customers with an intent to do violence. And these are just the people that they're targeting. And, you know, there was a serial killer I, ta- I talk about in the book, Gary Leon Ridgeway, who's called the Green River Killer. Um, and he operated in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest in the 80s and 90s. And he said flat out, I target targeted prostitutes because I thought I was doing the police a favor. It's chilling. (laughs) And you're also like, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, what have we done? Like, we're giving, we basically create an environment where we said this violence is acceptable as long as it's against this group of people. And I think that that's something we really need to confront when we, you know, get into these increasingly abstract conversations about, well, is sex work empowering or is it violating? And it's like, the cops don't care. (laughs) They're going to do what they're going to do. And they're, you know, what my concern is, they're they're exploiting this, like, feminist-sounding kind of rhetoric in order to increase stings, increase raids, put more people into the prison system, and then they can sort of dress it up in public as, oh, well, this is, you know, we're we're more gender-responsive now, right? We're... (laughs) It's, I think it's, um, it's part of an alarming trend in, in how so many people now, more than ever before in the United States, are involved in the prison system, in the criminal legal system. And this is a primary way that women are pushed into it. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. 
Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Let's talk about Canadian prostitution. This is an item that is very high on uh, Lewis's list of personal interests. BuzzFeed reporting that prostitution restrictions have been removed by the Canadian Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Canada struck down the country's anti-prostitution laws a few days ago, lifting the ban on brothels, street solicitation, and other restrictions. The court said that the law unconstitutionally violates the safety of prostitutes. So here's the deal in Canada. Prostitution is technically legal as a thing, right? But the government had put in place and enforced a number of restrictions on the sex industry which practically made it very difficult. It was difficult to run a brothel, public solicitation was illegal, among other things. And now, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin wrote, Parliament has the power to regulate against nuisances, but not at the cost of public health, safety, and the lives of prostitutes. The prohibitions all heighten the risks. They do not merely impose conditions on how prostitutes operate, they go a critical step further, imposing dangerous conditions on prostitution. They prevent people engaged in a risky but legal activity from taking steps to protect themselves from the risk. There's, there's going to be a year now before this goes into effect where the country can figure out, the parliament can figure out, well, what other restrictions do we want to put in place here? This actually makes a lot of sense to me, Lewis, because in great part, it's the lack of legality and the lack of regulation that create a lot of the unsafe conditions and challenges with prostitution. You can have an ethical, moral opinion of prostitution, the idea of selling sex, even though in many other ways sex is bought and sold every single day, just a little bit less uh, directly and openly than, than actual prostitution. But if two adults agree to have consensual sex with each other in exchange for money, it's not trafficking, which is a totally different crime that remains illegal regardless of the legality of prostitution, Lewis. And if you have restrictions on prostitution, you make it so that if there is a violent attack from somebody who is procuring prostitution services, that victim can't even go to the police because they are already engaged in something that is a crime. I think that this makes a lot of sense.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Sex Workers Project. Human trafficking is in the news almost daily now. Along with the much-needed light being shown on this despicable, violent, and pervasive industry comes an unfortunate and frustrating conflation with sex work. Most news outlets and writers don't bother to draw the distinction, ignoring well-respected international groups' recommendations and research into the sex industry. The United Nations Global Commission on HIV and the law recommended in 2012 that all countries, quote, decriminalize private and consensual adult sexual behaviors, including same-sex sexual acts and voluntary sex work, unquote. A definitive line is drawn along the clear guidelines which distinguish voluntary sex work from coercion. That international peace group's advice is so easily dismissed means an extremely uphill battle for those like Melissa Jarrah Grant, who we just heard from, who advocate on behalf of sex workers. The Sex Workers Project is doing the hard work of advocacy on behalf of a stigmatized industry. They provide client-centered legal and social services and individuals who engage in sex work, regardless of whether they do so by choice, circumstance, or coercion. Their professional service providers are multilingual and non-judgmental, assisting clients to remain in stable housing, access safer working conditions and employment options, protect their legal rights in family court, clear criminal records, secure legal immigration status, fight police misconduct, and access long-term supportive therapy while creating best practices in a marginalized but legitimate field. They have a celebration coming up on June 5th that's open to the public with an amazing lineup of speakers and participants. Links to the event and ticket info are in the segment notes and available at urbanjustice.org. Proceeds from Empower, a celebration of the Sex Workers Project, will fund media advocacy, sex worker-led organizing, and campaigning for policy change. A recent campaign to change the NYPD condom confiscation policy has resulted in a partial victory. Sex workers report they're more likely to be arrested when carrying condoms, leading many to forego the safety measure to avoid prosecution. This contributes to obvious public health risks, not to mention the misinterpretation of marginalized communities who are stopped and questioned simply for walking down the street. The NYPD, under newly elected Mayor Bill de Blasio, has announced a new policy. According to ABC News, quote, the NYPD PD heard from community health advocates and took a serious look at making changes to our current policy as it relates to our broader public safety mission, Police Commissioner William Bratton said, announcing the end of condom confiscation from suspected sex workers. Civil rights groups, including the Sex Workers Project, Human Rights Watch, Lambda Legal, Legal Aid Society, and others are calling for further reform and the discontinuation of condom seized during arrest being used as evidence at trial as well. Visit nocondomsasevidence.org to add memos of support, spread the word that the work is not yet done, sign the coming petition, and if you live in New York City, call your city council member. What starts as policy in cities the size of New York spread around the country. We must all praise recent reform while pushing for more. Stigma does not end with one piece of legislation. It takes all of us engaging on a human rights issue to change the narrative. The Not Your Rescue Project hashtag was started in January by a coalition of sex workers and allies fighting back against stigma and the idea that they were all powerless women in need of saving by predatory NGOs. Read the linked article by Andrea Garcia Vargas, published at Bustle, on where the hashtag started and how to support the activist efforts. If you're just becoming aware of the issue of sex workers' rights, the stories and narratives you'll find there will help break down preconceived notions and give you a way to engage with one of the most marginalized groups in our society. If they can be brave enough to speak, we should honor that by listening and learning to become allies. Activism. Come 
Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? So there was a terrific piece about sex work in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, which is kind of shocking. A lot of daily papers, including the New York Times, don't really cover sex work in a smart way or an empowering way or a way that's realistic about sex work, about prostitution, about uh, online sex ads. But this piece by Robert Kolker, who's a contributing editor to New York Magazine and the author of a book called Lost Girls and Unresolved American Mystery that's forthcoming, was really smart about sex work and about how the internet has really impacted sex and it, the piece doesn't stigmatize sex workers which is huge because usually any piece that's written about sex workers either shames and stigmatizes sex workers or pathologizes them or falls into this all people who are doing sex work have been sex trafficked and there's no way for sex work to work without it being exploitative and abusive and the piece goes into really the impact of the, that the web has had uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from it the web has been the great disruptor of any number of industries, transforming the way people shop for everything, and commercial sex has been no exception. Posting ads online, escorts find clients without ever having to leave home or walk the streets. One of the experts at Kolker quotes says that the Internet, said to be the solution to many problems, was expected to legitimize the entire field of prostitution, elevate the underclass, uh, and make pimps a thing of the past. Uh, because so many people who used to walk the streets was just dangerous or go through escort agencies that would rip them off that would keep two-thirds or three-quarters of the uh, of the hourly rate or be preyed upon by pimps who would market them and steal their money could just put an online ad up and go into business all by themselves and it was safer and more lucrative and more empowering and here's where i need to tell you that this piece by kolker is about the victims of the long island serial killer 10 women all of whom were sex workers all of whom were posting ads online all of whose bodies were found on a beach in Long Island wrapped in burlap and buried in the sand. The Long Island serial killer who's preying on uh, sex workers and escorts in New York City hasn't been caught. Uh, obviously, eliminating pimps and the falling barriers to entry around sex work hasn't made sex work perfectly safe. Some would argue because sex work is unsafe that it should be banned, that it should be illegal, that the prohibition should remain in place. And any sex workers' rights activist will tell you that that prohibition often makes sex work less safe. So because sex work is unsafe, people who oppose sex work being legal or legalized or decriminalized want to keep these laws in force that actually make it even less safe than it could be otherwise. It's a little bit of a catch-22. Uh, it's a little bit of a logical shitstorm fallacy, fuckwittedness uh, that props up unsafe and illegal sex work. Back to Coker's piece. Of course, if capitalism teaches us anything, it's that a demand-heavy market will find a way to thrive no matter the obstacles. That's what we see with prostitution now. Illegal everywhere in the United States except Nevada somewhere. And it thrives. It thrives despite throwing prostitutes in jail. It thrives despite busts of Johns and rounding up of Johns. The, the, the market continues to meet this need. There is demand, and the demand will be met. There is money to be made. That money will be made. Kolker points out that the demand, this demand sustains human trafficking and underage escorts engaging in survival sex, which is a huge problem. If you, like me, 
think that sex work should be legal, that people have a right to control their own bodies, that if it's legal to have sex with someone, if it's legal to be paid to have sex on film, to appear in pornography, that there should be nothing illegal about selling your own time and energies to someone, uh, that if that is what you choose to do. But that's the problem with sex work, is that some people engaged in it, some people trapped in it, aren't making a free and clear choice. Some people, by economic circumstances, aren't making a free and clear choice. A lot of the women that Kolker profiles in this piece wound up doing sex work because they couldn't make a living, even with a high school degree or even with some college college education, they couldn't make a living in the parts of the country where they lived that paid anything beyond a minimum wage. They couldn't support themselves and their families, their children, on the, the wages that they could earn flipping burgers. But one woman that he profiles went to New York one night, put an ad online, and went home with $2,000 the next day and was able to then care for her child with that money. Maybe if we had living wage laws, maybe if we had a national health care program, maybe if we had access to daycare, maybe if our economic system wasn't so grinding and unjust to people on the bottom of the ladder, she wouldn't have wound up doing prostitution through economic necessity or out of economic necessity. So some people wind up doing sex work because economically they feel they have no other choice. Some people are trafficked, some people are pimped, some people are exploited and abused. Either case, I think it's wrong, whether it's economic or exploitation, absolutely wrong. And what I really liked about this piece and really kind of blew my mind is it floated something that I've floated. I floated here on the show that we have to find a way out of this. We have to find a way that takes this market that's going to exist, whether we like it or not, and creates a framework that allows people to enter it as providers, as sex workers, but also people to enter it as johns and, and purchasers. In a different world, Kolker writes, technology could be harnessed to reduce the dangers of prostitution. The University of Colorado law professor Scott Peppett has floated the possibility of a technology-enabled sex market where escorts and clients are all pre-vetted and predators are screened out. The law, however, is hostile to such innovation, Professor Peppet writes. It currently criminalizes not just prostitution itself, but activities, including technologies, that advance or facilitate sex markets, or in this case, makes a sex market safer. For the women we are all so concerned about being abused or violated or murdered, but also safer for the Johns. I get letters every day. This is controversial. I get letters every day from men who wish to patronize a sex worker and are really on the rack, really worried, concerned, uh, torn about the possibility that they may patronize or have patronized someone who is being trafficked, someone who's being abused, someone who's being used and exploited as opposed to the independent contractor that everybody hopes to find. And they would like a way to identify women who are less likely to have been trafficked, less likely to have been abused, um, so that they don't have to feel terrible about what they've done by buying sex. And I've thought for a long time that there should be some sort of good housekeeping seal of approval, some way of some technology-enabled sex market where people can be pre-vetted and predators can be screened out, but also trafficked women can be screened out. And if we created this, we could funnel both the supply and the demand into this safer, not all, not anything is 100% safe, this safer format, this safer structure we could create a legitimate legal sex market where people's needs could be met, need to make money, need to buy sex, while greatly reducing the chances that someone is being abused. If to see 
a legit vetted sex worker, you had to be vetted yourself and you had to leave identifying information, you are a lot less likely to kidnap and murder that sex worker. If you have an online profile, if you're a registered client, you are a lot less likely to kidnap and murder. And to then be a sex worker who goes through that system, you are a lot less likely to be abused. You're a lot less likely to be exploited. You're a lot less likely to be the victim of violence. It seems the rational thing to do to create this kind of system. If what we're worried about when we talk about banning sex work is the safety of women engaged in it, this is what we should be doing. Channeling demand, channeling the supply into a space where it's safer for all involved. That means not just destigmatizing sex work, but destigmatizing people who patronize sex workers. And how do you channel Johns to this market? How do you channel clients to this market? Well, like I said, a lot of them really desperately don't want to purchase sex from someone who's being exploited or trafficked. They worry about it um, and, and they want to avoid it. So a lot of them would opt in. They would be like, awesome, if I do this, then I know I have an assurance. If I'm going to a woman who has this good housekeeping stamp of approval from this board, this agency that vets using all this new technology that's at our disposal, then I'm not exploiting somebody. And buying sex from someone who wants to be selling sex. This is her job, her career, it's her, the choice that she's made, and I can feel better about myself. Then, that's the carrot for a lot of these guys. Then comes the stick. If we create a marketplace, if we create this using these technologies where, where sex workers are vetted and their clients are vetted, anybody who buys outside of that system, you come down like 10 tons of shit on that guy. If you go through the, you go through the system, I don't know what else to call it, you go through this system, of course, anybody who's underage is going to be eliminated. That's easy. We can eliminate underage prostitution quickly, simply. And then you penalize anyone. We, I, you should still punish Johns who buy outside this system that was created to make sex work safe for sex workers and to prevent people from being exploited or trafficked or prevent people who are underage from engaging in sex work. You say, hey, guys who want to buy... Sex, here you go. We have set this system up for you. You choose to buy outside this system that makes it safe for sex workers, makes your buying sex not contributing to anyone's destruction or exploitation. You buy outside this system, yeah, you're in trouble. Buy inside the system, no penalties at all. Not illegal. Buy outside the system, buy on the street, buy sex from an underage minor, buy it in such a way where you are likely to be purchasing from someone who's trafficked because you're going outside the system, then you go to jail. That will funnel the demand into this system that makes sex work safe for sex workers, which is what everyone says they want. Everyone says, even people who are prohibitionists, say they just, they're concerned about the safety of women. Okay, concerned about the safety of women doing sex work. You should get behind a system like this because it will make sex work safe. You can't end sex work. Any more than you can end abortion. Ban abortion, you will have abortions. They will be unsafe. Ban sex work, you will have sex work. It'll just be a lot more dangerous than it needs to be. There's a online debate right now roaring at my friend Andrew Sullivan's blog. Not really a debate, just an acknowledgement uh, of people who do sex surrogacy, people who see d profoundly disabled people, people who are paraplegic, quadriplegic, people who are you know, incapable of going out and meeting someone or highly unlikely to actually meet someone. Not that paraplegics, quadriplegics don't meet people. They do. Um, not that a paraplegic or quadriplegic can't have a relationship uh, with someone that isn't being paid to be with them. Many do. But there are people who are so profoundly disabled, so physically disabled, that really their only option to any sort of sexual intimacy 
and sexual expression is a sex surrogate. And sex surrogate is the $30 word for sex worker, for prostitute. And nobody really seems to have a problem with this. That if somebody is pr- profoundly physically disabled, we can all get behind that person buying sex or sex being purchased for that person. Because it would be awful for that person to have to live their whole life without any sexual release or intimacy because of this condition. A lot of men who buy sex are profoundly disabled, socially disabled. They are so socially awkward that they cannot get sex any other way. That purchasing sex, paying a woman to be with them, is the only way they can get that kind of intimacy and release. But because they are not quadriplegics, because they don't have MS, because they don't have Parkinson's, because they're not paraplegics, we look at them and condemn them. When really, all they're doing is the same thing that someone who's profoundly physically disabled is doing. They're profoundly socially disabled, they're purchasing sex. Someone's profoundly physically disabled, purchasing sex. Really for the same reasons. So if we could destigmatize a lot of the reasons why people buy sex, if we could see people who are profoundly socially disabled as objects of sympathy too, and drop those barriers and create that market that allows them to get those needs met, sexual needs, allows them to have some sort of sexual expression, some sexual intimacy in their life, we could make sex work safer. We would have fewer dead women turning up wrapped up in burlap, buried in the sand on Long Island, because it would be much more difficult to prey on the sex workers who are meeting those needs, who are providing a necessary service, who deserve better from the culture and from all of us than making their work more dangerous than it has to be, than the stigma we attach to it, and throwing them in prison. This is a coming social justice movement. This is about people controlling their own bodies. I see this as linked to abortion, as linked to gay marriage, as linked to marijuana, decriminalization. We need to do this. We've been in denial about this for millennia. And people are suffering and people are dying. Women are dying because of the way we've set this market up. My name is Jim. I'm calling from Washington State. Um, thanks, Jay, for this podcast. I discovered it a couple of months ago, and I'm finding it to be really, really educational for me as a progressive-minded person. I listened recently to your climate change episode, and I was fairly surprised for a progressive podcast to hear no mention whatsoever of animal agriculture and its contribution to the climate issues that we have. I'm not surprised that I don't hear that in the mainstream media or in politics because the power of the animal agriculture industry is immense. But I was curious if you could maybe provide a little explanation as to why it got no mention whatsoever on your program. Um, Thank you very much. Bye. The answer to that is both simple and complicated. Uh, first of all, it's not just the mainstream media. The liberal media doesn't talk about agriculture's effects on climate either, unless you get into the specific food or vegetarian or vegan-related podcasts. So the fact that I could make a show all about the climate and not mention uh, agriculture at all is actually pretty representative of the liberal media landscape right now, unfortunately. Now, why that's the case is a little bit more complicated, but I think it has to do with people practicing a lot of cognitive dissonance while they try to believe that their own eating habits are not affecting the climate, even though they know for a fact that they are. 
and that probably just has to do with some deep-seated issues preventing them from wanting to become vegetarian, uh, going back to their childhood, and probably issues with their mother. Hey, it's Nathan from Boca, Richmond, Florida again. Um, wanted to weigh in on the marriage conversation, polyamory conversation. Um, and I have a slightly different take on all of this from um, marriage in general. I think, you know, I don't, I think marriage should be seen as a religious thing and the government needs to get out of it entirely. So um, what I would say is upgrade civil unions to the status marriage holds now. Define a civil union as a union between two or more consenting adults, 18 or older, for whatever purpose they deem is necessary, get a contract signed, and that's it. That's your civil union. It would get all the same rights, all the same tax rights, all the same privileges that marriage does. Now, that's the important part, that you have everything that a marriage currently comes with. A marriage itself is a ceremony that happens in a religious setting underneath whatever God these particular people will see, but it's not required in a state or in, a, in an official governmental capacity. Um, so that's my take on it. And, um, and of course, while that's not happened, I think we do need to open the definition of marriage up to more people and more definitions so that everyone gets full equality. But um, on the other side, we can begin to see marriage as a religious-only thing and see civil unions as what marriages are today. Um, and it wouldn't change anything other than the words used on the official document. That's it. Thank you. Have a good have a good evening. Keep up the good work. This is actually my exact opinion on the marriage equality debate. And I've thought this ever since, I don't know, 2005 or something like that when I first heard the idea. Basically, that if people have a problem with marriage being redefined, by the government, then the government should just stop even trying to please everyone and get out of the game entirely. Hi, Jay. It's Paula Scott. I'm out here in California, Southern California. I'm just calling to thank you for your show. Um, I have to be honest, sometimes listening to your show depresses me, but today I listened to the show about the potential for campaign finance reform, and God, it was so worthwhile it gave me a lot of hope, and it, I went ahead and pledged some money to that organization, May 1, and um, it also inspired me to go ahead and subscribe to your, or actually I didn't subscribe, I mean I didn't get a membership, but I gave you a $55 um, donation just because I'd been supporting you with a small donation I gave you a while ago and through my Amazon shopping, but that just the episode you did today was worth the, the money to me, to me for the whole year, so Thank you so much, and um, I appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And uh, additionally, thanks to everyone who's been uh, writing in with uh, you know comments and suggestions on podcasting marketing strategies. I, I-, I was mentioning the other day that no one has figured this out yet, whether whether it be an individual, uh, you know, progressive radio show or podcast or whatever, or a group of, you know, podcasters getting together to sort of promote each other. No one has figured out the uh, the silver bullet, if there is one, or or even a barrage of silver bullets that together 
can actually uh, sort of solve this problem. So uh, I, I appreciate everyone who, who's been chiming in with their ideas. Please keep them coming if you have any thoughts on the matter. Um, in, in the meantime, I, I've got a few ideas I'm going to work on. I uh, think things are like sort of uh, starting to kick around my head a little bit, and you know we'll we'll see what comes of that. In uh, in the immediate. I wanted to, ju- to jump on something that's you know, low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, I, I've been working on the website for a while, sort of in, in fits and starts uh, a little bit. And uh, for a long time now, individual segments as well as the full show, you know, e- each episode that comes out, is is completely shareable through social media or email or however you would like to do it. And, and so I'm going to try to get myself back in the habit of, uh, you know, mentioning that at the end of the show, encouraging you. If you've heard anything you liked today, uh, please head over to the website and, and check out the show notes. Click on either the show itself or any individual segments that you liked and, uh, and then share those with the people you think might be interested. And uh, to that end, I want to thank people who have already been doing that. Longtime supporters. Just wanted to mention a couple of people. Uh, Jeff Tone comes right to mind. He, he regularly shares things. He's been a, a big supporter for a long time. And then, uh, and this just his handle, Webster CMB, can always be counted on to share uh, basically every segment we put out. He puts out uh, through his social networks. It's it's really appreciated. I want to start uh, sort of showing my appreciation for that if if I can get in the habit of it. And you know, and just encourage you that if you want to help support the show, the single best way to do it is to get more people to listen to it. So right now, the easiest thing to do is to share individual segments uh, on, on the show or, you know, I mean, just mention, just, t- you know, talk to your Twitter followers, post on Facebook, those sorts of things. Just tell people about the show that you listen to and, you know, why you liked it or why they should try it, anything along those lines. And we will try to, you know, keep track of those. Anytime you tag the show, we can track those and, and we'll try to, uh, you know, give you a shout out here to show our appreciation. And in the very near future, we hope to uh, have it set up on the website so that you can actually share the activism segments for the show besides you know sure you can go and you can share the the audio file of each uh, activism segment but you know we would like to have a great robust archive of the activism segments so you could go and browse through all of them and share those which as we should all uh, pretty easily understand uh, is you know basically the the most important thing you could pass around is you know what people can do to make the world a better place so we'll leave it there for now, but thanks again to everyone who's been uh, chiming in on that conversation, or even more importantly, uh, you know, already spreading the word about the show is uh, very, very much appreciated, and that is absolutely what's going to you know, get more people to actually tune in. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained